In this podcast from Hope PR Ministry, we'll be picking up where we left off on the subject of the biblical truths of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We once again sat with Professor David Engelsmer, and we will be focusing primarily on the truths of divorce and remarriage based upon scripture. This podcast is produced by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan, and we would love to have you join us at one of our church services on a Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Hope PR Ministry. Uh, we're once again sat with Prof. Engelsma. We're in his study today and with my co-host Jeff Kalsbeek, and we're going to be continuing to talk about the topic of marriage, uh, specifically divorce and remarriage today, uh, continuing on from last time. Morning, Jeff. How Morning. you doing? Pretty good. And uh, you are Josh Harris. That's right. So, I forgot to introduce yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions, our listeners have any questions, it's Hope rwc at gmail.com you can send your questions there after you have listened to this podcast and uh, we're going to just do a little recap of last time we talked about divorce and remarriage and god's truth about that and we'll ask professor engelsma to give us that uh, biblical view of divorce and remarriage to start once again we pointed out last time that fundamental to the church's doctrine of divorce and remarriage, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, is the account of the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. It cannot be emphasized heavily enough that that account of God's institution of marriage in the beginning is fundamental for the church's doctrine of marriage, divorce, and remarriage down the ages. In Genesis 2, We read that God saw that it was not good that Adam be alone and determined to make a wife to be a help fitted to him and so created Eve from a rib of Adam and officiated at what we can regard as the original marriage ceremony. He brought Eve to Adam and then declared, as we read at the end of Genesis 2, that the two of them would be one flesh And the man would cleave to his wife so that they would become one flesh. And what's fundamental about that passage is the fact that all of the New Testament instruction on that important aspect of the Christian life that consists of marriage appeals in one way or another back to that original institution of marriage in the beginning. Christ's instruction on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in Matthew 19, for example, includes that Christ responded to the Pharisees who tempted him when they pointed out that Moses permitted Israel to divorce and remarry. Christ's response was, from the beginning it was not so, but in the beginning God made them one flesh, and that truth governs Christ's instruction about marriage and the apostles' instruction concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and all the many New Testament passages that teach on that subject. That must govern our discussion today, specifically with regard to divorce and remarriage. We must not forget the truth of the institution of marriage in the beginning and the significance of that truth for all later Christian doctrine and practice of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And as the uh, New Testament passages reveal, like you had said, 
Jesus and the apostles taught the negative aspect of marriage in the service of the truth of marriage as they dealt with these practical matters that arose. And we're going to talk about those a little bit more today, those New Testament passages. Uh, We ended with a positive truth last time that Jesus has unconditional love for us, his church, and we're commanded and privileged to reflect that unconditional love in our own marriages. So we'll begin again with those New Testament passages. As you mentioned last time, Professor, Jesus had opportunity to address divorce and remarriage in his earthly ministry. He went immediately to Genesis 2, and we'd like you to take us through the the argument, what Jesus was teaching there in uh, that passage, which is Matthew 19. I think we'll read those verses, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. In that passage, the occasion is a tempting question put to Jesus by the Pharisees, according to Matthew 19, verse 3. And their temptation took the form of this question, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They suppose that whatever answer he gives will betray him as in error in some regard with regard to the word of God. So it's a tempting question, and it's important to notice that the tempting question concerns divorce, as we would call it today, a man's putting away his wife. But in the background of the question that concerns specifically divorce is the understanding that invariably a man puts away his wife with the desire to remarry. So the subject of remarriage, although not explicitly mentioned in verse 3, is nevertheless very much in play here. And that's why Jesus in his response also refers to the man who divorces his wife marrying another that's in the background and implied in the question of the Pharisees to him. But in answer to that tempting question, Jesus appeals to the institution of marriage as recorded in Genesis chapter 2 and explains that institution and the word of God at the first marriage ceremony, as I regard it, as a prohibition of divorce. He takes head-on the question of the Pharisees concerning the permissibility of divorce, putting away one's wife, and argues from the institution of marriage that that is impermissible. One may not divorce his wife. He must cleave to his wife and live in recognition of the reality that the two of them, the man and his wife, are one flesh. They aren't two. They cannot and may not be separated, therefore, but they are one flesh. And as intimate as one flesh is, so intimate is the union of the husband and the wife. And he concludes his answer to the Pharisees in verse 6 by the command, What therefore God hath joined together, which is true of every marriage. And I note here that marriage is not strictly and exclusively an ecclesiastical 
matter, but it's a matter of social reality. God instituted marriage before the institution of the church, and the truth that Jesus is expressing and that we're reflecting on in this discussion today applies to the institution of marriage in the world as well as to the institution of marriage in the church. Jesus' command is, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He recognizes that divorce is the attempt of humans to separate or put asunder what God has joined together, and that's forbidden. Let not man put asunder. In divorce, humans are attempting to separate the cleaving and joining that are a reality in God's institution of marriage, and Christ forbids it. And the church ought to recognize that, and society ought to recognize that, because society is going to be judged according to this word of Jesus Christ as well as members of the church. No divorce. Often in our discussion of this subject, we leap immediately to the matter of remarriage. And that's understandable because invariably divorce has a remarriage in view, if not at the time of the divorce, then later, because humans experience the truth of it that it's not good for man to live alone. We're created to be in a marital relationship. And that's a, therefore it's understandable that when we talk about the subject that we're discussing today, we have a tendency to jump at once to the matter of remarriage following divorce. And what we overlook is that divorce itself is forbidden. Divorce itself is a sin. Jesus commands what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He's forbidding divorce there. But the response of the Pharisees to the teaching of Jesus is immediate. And although, in fact, they didn't really have much concern about the teaching of the Bible, they used it here to their advantage, they thought. They bring up the fact that in, Math in Deuteronomy 24, Moses permitted the Israelites to divorce and to remarry. Should we read that? Yeah, let's do that. I can read those verses. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and give it, giveth it her in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. The Pharisees appealed to that Old Testament permission of divorce on the part of Israelite men, followed, as is invariably the case, by a remarriage. But even then, they misstate the force of that permission. In verse 7 of Matthew 19, the Pharisees respond to Jesus' prohibition of divorce with this question, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? 
they attribute some regulative power to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24. The fact is he didn't command anything there at all, as Jesus points out in verse 8, his response. Moses merely suffered the Israelites to put away their wives. He permitted that. That's interesting. Yeah. And again, significantly, Jesus takes us back to the institution of marriage. From the beginning, it was not so. Even the permission of divorce was not part of the original institution of marriage. But as he has quoted and emphasized earlier, God joined the two together in such a way that it's impermissible for man to put the two asunder as the advocates of divorce are eager to do. And I'd like to point out something else about the Deuteronomy 24 passage that is commonly overlooked. Moses did not simply give an unrestricted permission to the Israelites to divorce their wives, but he was talking about the possibility that a man found something unclean in his wife after he married her. Now, it's famously difficult to interpret that uncleanness and explain that uncleanness, what that uncleanness consisted of. There's no further reflection on that in the Old Testament. But I do call attention to the fact that Moses' permission of divorce had to do with this particular instance that a man, after he married his wife, found some uncleanness in her. And in view of the subject of marriage and in view of the term itself, uncleanness, I'm convinced that the man found some kind of sexual uncleanness in his wife, which could only have been gotten by an earlier fornication on her part prior to her marriage to her husband. Now that's quite a restriction in itself and comes close to the one ground for divorce in the New Testament, which is the fornication of the woman or of the man. But in any case, Moses merely permitted the Israelites to divorce and then remarry as is inevitably the consequence of divorce. And the important point is that he merely permitted the Israelites to do that. And then Christ adds these serious words that even in the case of the Old Testament permission of divorce, those who divorced their wives did so because they had hard hearts. And a hard heart is an unbelieving heart so that the application to those today who like to appeal to that Deuteronomy passage is if you want to apply that to yourself, you're acknowledging that you too have a hard heart. If you want to divorce your wife the way it was permitted in the Old Testament, you're acknowledging that you have a hard heart. And a hard heart is an unbelieving heart. So that by this demand that one be permitted to divorce, the way Israel was in the Old Testament, this is acknowledgement of oneself that he is an unbeliever. So Moses' uh, permission, uh, Jesus is saying, was not in harmony with Genesis 2. And he insists that it's plain from the beginning that it was one man and one woman for life. Anything different was disregard to God's law. Is that correct? That's correct. And then it has to be noted, too, because today also 
members of the church who'd like to divorce and then remarry will appeal to the Deuteronomy 24 passage in support of their demand for a divorce to be followed by a remarriage. It's important to point out that in the Matthew 19 passage, Jesus immediately follows up on what he has said in explanation of Deuteronomy 24. And I say unto you, so that permissive regulation of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus sets aside and indicates plainly that that is no longer the rule for divorce in the church today. The rule for the church today is Jesus' word in verse 9 of Matthew 19. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. Now there is difficulty in that passage, and I suppose we're going to talk about that difficulty, but I want to point out that in general, and in distinction from the Old Testament permission, Jesus forbids divorce. That is the force of his words in verse 9 on the very surface. It was permitted once to put away your wife. It's not permitted to do that anymore. I say unto you that divorce is forbidden. Now, if divorce is forbidden, the following remarriage is forbidden too, and a full explanation of verse 9 has to get into that. But it must not be overlooked that the surface meaning of verse 9 is Jesus' prohibition of divorce. The question from the Pharisees was about the permissibility of divorce with appeal to Moses, and Jesus says it's forbidden in the New Testament. Among the people of God who do not have hard hearts, but are born again believing sanctified people, divorce is forbidden. I think it's important to note as well in the context of Matthew 19, the Pharisees, they were looking to tempt Jesus to say something contrary to what God's word says and what Moses had said in the law. But what Moses has said in, in Deuteronomy 24, as we said, that's he, he did suffer that, and it wasn't a command necessarily in verses 1 through 4. It was merely an observation that he saw. It's what he saw in Israel. Um, the question I have for you is, when does the observation become law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, and how can we discern between observation and law? The answer to that question is, Jesus sets aside the permission, I'd rather call it that, the permission than the law. Jesus sets aside the permission of Deuteronomy 24 for the New Testament church. When Jesus speaks, that becomes the law for the church. And what may have been permitted in Deuteronomy 24 is no longer regulatory and may no longer be appealed to for marriage behavior any longer in the church. Moses permitted it, Jesus is saying in Matthew 19. I don't permit it, not even in a case of uncleanness. Divorce is impermissible, and then, of course, it follows that remarriage is impermissible as well. Now, there is an exception to the prohibition of divorce in Matthew 19, verse 9, except it be for fornication. So Jesus does allow divorce, doesn't command it, but permits divorce on the ground that one's mate is guilty of sexual infidelity, which indicates how important the sexual aspect of marriage is. 
But the important point is that that is the one ground for divorce. Then he adds and marries another because invariably the attempt to divorce one's mate has a remarriage in view. And Christ condemns that remarriage as adultery. Now the question is, and Matthew 19 verse 9 is a difficult passage on our subject for that reason. The question is, does Jesus only permit divorce on the ground of fornication? Or is he also permitting a remarriage on the ground of fornication? And when the reality of the divorce has been on the ground of fornication so that there is a permission to remarry on the one ground of the fornication of one's mate. But I want to come back to the prohibition of divorce. We should not right away get into the issue of the permissibility or impermissibility of the innocent party, so-called, to remarry when we're discussing Matthew 19, verse 9. But we should recognize the force of verse 9 as the forbidding of divorce for all reasons except for the reason of fornication. And that points out the sinfulness of a great deal of behavior on the part of professing Christians today and the error of many churches to allow divorce on many other grounds beside the ground of fornication. We recognize that fornication is a ground for divorce. But that's the only ground for divorce that is permitted to be an operation in the New Testament church. And even that doesn't break the bond. I think you had mentioned that last, last time we met, that uh, man's sin can't, can't break that bond yet, even if there is a divorce. That observation is of crucial importance. The question is, does divorce on the ground of the fornication of one's mate break or dissolve the marriage bond. If it does, the so-called innocent party has a right to remarry. But the second part of Matthew 19, verse 9, often overlooked also in the discussion on the subject of that text, speaks to that very point. In the second part of Matthew 19, verse 9, we read, And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. In that second part of the text, Jesus is referring to the woman who has been divorced even though she has not committed adultery and whose husband has married another and is committing adultery. Now, if it's true that the fornication of one's mate makes lawful the remarriage of the person who has not committed adultery, Jesus could not have said what he did in the second part of Matthew 19, verse 9. Even though her husband has put her away, though she has not committed adultery, and the same husband is married now to another and is committing adultery, she is forbidden to remarry. Whoever marries her is committing adultery, and you can't commit adultery by yourself alone, so she is committing adultery as well. And that indicates the answer to the question, does divorce dissolve the marriage bond? The fact is that the marriage bond remains intact even though divorce has taken place on the ground of fornication. The only dissolving of the marriage bond is death, as is pointed out by 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, and other passages. 
where the apostle plainly says that a woman is bound to her husband as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Fornication does not dissolve the marriage bond. Only God can dissolve the marriage bond. Sin cannot dissolve it. And God himself dissolves the bond when one of the two married persons dies. Death is the only dissolution of the bond. Is there uh, anything to the fact that it has been pointed out by some that words for divorce in Scripture might mean dissolve? The Greek term for putting away does not mean dissolve. That's sheer conjecture, and that's the intrusion into the debate of a point that would settle the matter of the possibility of remarriage after divorce in favor of those who advocate remarriage after divorce. The fact of the matter is, and that's an important point, the Bible itself makes plain that divorce does not dissolve the marriage bond. And the Greek term for putting away does not mean dissolve. It simply means to separate unjustly what God has joined together and to attempt to separate the cleaving that is essential to marriage by God's institution of the marriage bond. So simply put, putting away or divorce in the New Testament, that word, that Greek term, does not mean dissolve. The only thing that dissolves the bond is the death of one of the two married persons. And that is the way that God decreed it to be. He's the one who formed, he was the one who, who made marriage. He's the one that joins two together and he's the only one that can decide the basis for the marriage ending. That's correct, and the institution of marriage in the beginning makes that plain. The two cleave and become one flesh by God's action in the institution of marriage. And as God is the one who unites them and makes them one flesh, an extraordinarily strong statement, one flesh is like saying one complete human being, and that's indissoluble except by the God who instituted marriage. And that is decisive for the questions that come up in the church today. May there be a remarriage after divorce, if not for every reason, then on the ground of the fornication of one's husband or wife. The answer to that question must be determined in light of the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. God has made the two one flesh. And that's such a tight union, such an intimate union, that nothing can separate that except God by death. Even the gross sin of fornication cannot separate the one flesh into two fleshes again. I'm reminded, too, that it has to be God-given faith to believe that truth about one flesh. Uh, God miraculously makes two one flesh. It's not observable that that's what has happened. And that's where uh, the importance of faith comes in, to, to believe that that actually happens in a marriage. I think that's right. We live together in marriage, and the church makes its statements about marriage out of faith in Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is made known in Scripture. It's not surprising, then, that the world pays no attention to this whatsoever and blithely attempts to separate what God has joined and ignores the cleaving that belongs to the marriage institution. That shouldn't surprise us. No. But what does surprise us and ought to appall us is that the church, the nominal church, flies in the face of this 
and ignores this and makes grounds for setting aside the truth of what is a basic aspect of the Christian life as that is revealed in Scripture, starting with the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. The church is betraying the truth of marriage. What about forcible marriage? I'm thinking, I've I've read where just little girls, 11, 12-year-old girls were forced to marry a man. Is where I, I the question kind of comes from where when does this one flesh union happen when does god make two one flesh now of course in that hypothetical you, you could have a man that uh, he's a cult leader and he's got a dozen wives and then he takes other girls well that probably not a marriage he's married to his first wife but there there could be cases where somebody's forced into marriage as a little girl is that God putting them two as one flesh? That profound question really is what constitutes a marriage, a lawful marriage. There are several aspects to a genuine marriage, one of which would conclude that the sexual union of a man and of a little girl against her will is not a marriage. One of the aspects of a genuine marriage is that the two willingly take each other as a husband and a wife. And you don't have that in the case of the forcible taking to oneself of a girl, little girl, against her will, or forcible marriages in other respects. The two must take each other willingly as husband and wife, which can be done in the world as well as in the church. But a forcible union, though it might call itself a marriage, does not constitute a marriage at all. And taking each other in marriage involves expressing that as well and vowing in one way or another to be the husband and wife of the other. So you would say that at that point, that's when God brings a man and a woman together in that one flesh union. Okay. I had a question yet on uh, Matthew 19, verse 6, where it says, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It's the wording of of that that makes it seem like there's a concession there let not man put us under there we have the ideal jesus states the ideal but let not man put us under it can you say anything about that the if that's translated correctly or if the original language has it different the surface meaning of the last phrase of matthew 19 verse 6 is a prohibition of the attempt to divide what God hath joined together in the marriage of every man and every woman who take each other as husband and wife, it's a prohibition against divorce. It does not imply that it is possible to dissolve the union that God has made. The rest of Scripture makes plain, and this passage does, it, does also, that in the end it's impossible to dissolve the bond that God has made at the marriage of two. But that The end of verse 6 is simply the prohibition against the attempt to do that by human divorce. It's similar to something like this, I might say to a heretic, don't deceive the true church of Jesus Christ. It's a prohibition against all efforts to deceive the church. It doesn't imply that he can. The true church cannot be deceived, but attempts are made, and though that kind of thought is the explanation of the end of verse 6. Okay. I've touched on the problem of Matthew 19, verse 9. 
does the fornication of one's mate apply only to the divorce or does it apply also to the remarriage so that verse 9 must be understood as teaching that in the case of fornication not only may one divorce but he may also marry another this text is not the clearest on that issue and we have to interpret it in the light of other scripture but also in light of the end of verse 9 which i have already explained the innocent woman who has been divorced unjustly by her husband and whose husband has married another and is committing adultery is forbidden to remarry. If she does remarry, she and her new mate, her new husband, are committing adultery. So that makes plain that when Jesus gives the exception clause that applies only to the prohibition of divorce, Jesus is saying there, you may not divorce except on the ground of fornication. But then he goes on to speak of marrying another because that's invariably in view when somebody divorces his wife or a, man, a woman divorces her husband and judges that the remarriage is a committing of adultery. Yeah, and I think uh, those other passages that we touched on last time at our last session were real helpful explaining the uh, full significance of Matthew 19. Here one must practice the rule you interpret Scripture in the light of Scripture, and you interpret the less clear passage in light of the clearer passage. In Mark 10 and Luke 16, Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, all unconditionally and without exception prohibit remarriage. So that sheds light on Matthew 19, verse 9, that the exception clause applies only to the prohibition of divorce. And there's no implication here that remarriage, even on the ground of fornication, is permitted. Yeah. What about the, uh, the disciples' response in verse 10? Why did they respond that way? His I'll read that. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be, with, be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. The disciples make the application that a man may marry badly, as we think. That's not altogether strange in the experience of pastors who have worked with difficult marriage cases in their congregations. What I say about the woman applies, of course, to the man as well, possibly. A woman may marry badly also, as she supposes. The man, in view in verse 10, may find himself with a wife who is miserable to live with, a shrew, and one who is sexually stingy as well, so that his life is seemingly to him intolerable, and he thinks he has ground for divorce just to get rid of her. And the response to that man, in addition to what Christ says, is that a man may make a mistake in marrying a woman, as he supposes, but God didn't make a mistake. God gave him that wife, even though she's a difficult woman to live with. But Jesus responds, by saying that's very well possible that a man finds himself with a miserable woman as his wife, so that his prohibition of divorce is a difficult saying for such a man. Practicing that prohibition of divorce means that he has to stay in this marriage relationship with a woman who is difficult to live with. And goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, that there are some eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. The sexual aspect of marriage is certainly in play there. The woman may not be willing to have sexual relations with her husband so that he's virtually a eunuch. 
He has to be willing to live in that state of marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't give up the rules about the permanency of marriage for the sake of the difficulty that some Christians may find themselves in. And that's a difficulty. A man may find himself consigned to live with a miserable wife all his life, year after year. And included in that misery is that he lives the life virtually of a eunuch, apart from sexual relations with her. Well, then he ought to look at it this way, that this is suffering that he endures for the kingdom of heaven's sake. But he must remain in that marriage, and he may not divorce his wife. So the disciples' question was, it's better not to be married at all than to be married to some women. And that poses hardship for a man in light of what Jesus has just taught about lifelong marriage with no possibility of divorce. Jesus does not relax the rule, but calls some men then to live the life of a eunuch or to live a miserable life in marriage all his life long and to do that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The Christian life carries with it sometimes hardships. Jesus recognizes that. That's not the only hardship. There are other hardships also, but we must be willing to endure those hardships without compromising the Word of God for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that's a wonderful response uh, of Jesus. He points them to their faith and to look, look beyond their earthly circumstances to the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I think, yeah, as he talks about eunuchs as well, he he he's basically saying as well that marriage is not the be-all and end-all for the people that he's speaking to and that it is good to to be a eunuch as well it's good to be single you serve the church and there should be joy in serving the church the marriage joy does not come necessarily through marriage or any earthly aspect it comes through faith as you say by living by faith and living for the lord and and for the sake of his church the Apostle Paul picks up on this aspect of Jesus' marital instruction in 1 Corinthians 7. There's a section in 1 Corinthians 7 that addresses exactly the kind of thing Jesus is referring to in answer to the question of his disciples in Matthew 19. He calls us to remember that this life is short and the life to come is long. We must have in view, even in our marital life, not only this life, but also the life to come. The life to come has to be more important to us than pleasures or a lack of pleasure in our marriages. Yeah, it seems like the starting point is crucial in the child of God's mind uh, going into marriage. If it's, I have a right to be happy in my marriage, then that's one thing. But if your starting point is what is God's will or what is pleasing to God, then that changes everything. I think it's applicable here, too, to reflect on the real marriage, which, as Ephesians 5 points out, is our reunion to Jesus Christ. Our marriage to Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we're happy all the time or that there are no unpleasant circumstances that we have to suffer. Many of God's people have suffered greatly, have suffered great loss because of their union to Jesus Christ. Some were even willing to give up their life and were tortured for the sake of their union to Christ. So happiness and personal human satisfaction are not the determinative matter in in our earthly marriages. There are miserable women. There are husbands who are unfeeling brutes. I'm not saying they abuse their wife, but they don't show much affection to their wife. 
And I can understand that a man or a woman would say, I would rather live a single life than to endure this marriage with this woman or with this man. And then the call of Jesus is, be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Uh, so in, Mal- in Malachi 2, uh, verses 11 through 16, uh, could you explain God's teaching of divorce? What Malachi 2 is addressing is this situation among the people of Judah returned from captivity. The men found heathen, unbelieving women more attractive than their own wife. And what was going on in Judah was that the men were divorcing their Jewish covenantal believing wife in order to marry heathen women. And what's especially significant about the word of the prophet Malachi to them is first of all that again he appeals to the institution of marriage in the beginning in Genesis 2. That's why I say that almost invariably in the Old Testament as in the New Testament when the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage comes up, appeal is made to the decisive institution of marriage by God in the beginning and the marriage sermon that God preached about marriage at the end of Genesis 2. Always we come back to that. That must determine the thinking and the behavior of the church and of the believers concerning their marriages. That's verse 13 in Malachi 2. And did he not make one, reflecting on what he had said at the end of verse 24, she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. That's a way of alluding to the cleaving of the two originally, and their becoming one flesh. God made one. So he's forbidding divorce. But there's also indication in the passage that he takes into view the remarriage with heathen women that was the effect of the divorce and the purpose of the divorce. This is also significant about the Malachi passage. It adds something to what other passages in the Bible have to say about the importance of the lifelong permanency of marriage. It takes into view the welfare of the children. One of the purposes of God in the unity of the husband and wife in the church now and the maintenance of that unity against all temptation to divorce is that God has a godly seed in view. Verse 15, he asks the question, does Malachi, wherefore did God make the two one? That he might seek a godly seed. And that's of extraordinary importance to the church today. One effective way of destroying the children who are baptized is for the parents to divorce and then bring another party into the home who is not the mother or the father of the children. That's destructive of the godliness of the children. Important for the godliness of the children is that they're brought up in a solid home where one believing man lives with one believing woman faithfully with each other, establishing the godly atmosphere of a home and giving godly instruction to the children. Negatively, divorce and remarriage in general is destructive of the salvation of the children that are part of that family and parents who are thinking of divorcing each other even because the marriage is not satisfactory ought to take their children into view. They're responsible to guide their children to salvation and give them a solid basis for their faith and life. Coming back to the original question, Malachi 2 is dealing with Wicked divorce with a view to marrying heathen women. Verse 11 speaks of this. 
Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange god. Upon their return from Babylonian captivity, where they had undoubtedly learned some heathen practices, the men of Judah were drawn to heathen women. So they were practicing what we call mixed marriages, but divorcing their believing wives in order to enter into these relationships with the daughter of a strange god. So that belongs to the teaching of Malachi too as well. Marriage with idolaters, marriage with non-believers. And Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 7 as he does about every aspect of marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, which I've already quoted, Paul says that a woman is bound by the law to her husband so long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, where death is pointed out as the sole dissolution of the bond of marriage that permits remarriage. But then Paul adds this, only in the Lord. The death of one's mate permits a woman to marry another man, but it has to be a marriage in the Lord. It has to be a marriage to another believer. So what would you say to someone listening today who is married to an unbeliever? That's not a ground for divorce, of course, right? That's It's only on the basis of fornication that you may divorce what what do you say to someone who is married to an unbeliever paul in first corinthians 7 addresses that very question specifically he envisions among the corinthians the marriage of some of them to unbelievers which is understandable because the corinthians married prior to the coming of the gospel to corinth they were all unbelievers and they had marriages, therefore, with unbelieving men and unbelieving women. When the gospel came, some of them were converted, and their mate was not converted. So they opened up their eyes one morning, and they were in bed with an unbeliever. And Paul addresses that specifically and says, that's a valid marriage. You must stay in it, entertaining the hope that God will, by your good behavior, convert your mate so that you may have marriage with a believer. And I can't help but point out that that instruction, again, harks back to the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. Marriage was instituted by God prior to the coming of the gospel into the world. The gospel came into the world in Genesis 3.15. Marriage was instituted as a creation ordinance. So it's an ordinance binding for unbelievers as well as for believers. Marriage belongs to the sphere of the natural life, the life of creation, not only to the life of the church, so that the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is a valid marriage. You can't have the Lord's Supper outside of the instituted church, but you have valid marriages outside the sphere of the church. So the marriage of a believer and an unbeliever is a valid marriage, and as long as the unbeliever is willing to dwell with the believer, the believer must stay in that relationship and regard herself or himself as validly married and not living in an ungodly relationship. Is it possible to read Malachi 2 to not be referring to hatred of divorce itself, but more a hatred of unjust divorce or sinful causes of divorce? Malachi has reference to divorce as such and to divorce with a view particularly to remarriage with a heathen woman. And Malachi calls divorce as such, dealing treacherously against the wife of your youth, 
That's the end of verse 15. One who divorces his wife, except in case of fornication now, which is not in view in Malachi 2, one who divorces his wife deals treacherously with her. He betrays her. And I've seen this happen more often than I would have liked in my own pastoral ministry, although it applies to a woman as well as to a man. All of a sudden, a woman who supposes that she's happily married to her husband, probably has children besides, finds out from him that he's not satisfied with her, he wants to get rid of her, he's got somebody else in view. Now that's sin in many respects, but it's treachery. It brings tears to your eyes. This young woman who gave herself entrusted herself, body and soul, to her husband, is treacherously divorced by her husband, betrayed. And that's how Malachi views all divorce, except, of course, on the ground of fornication, which is not the subject in Malachi 2. So by bringing up treachery against your original spouse, that's, that's more than just a, a sinful, unjust divorce. That's all divorce. That's emphasized in what follows in verse 16. The Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hated putting away. It would be a mistake for us, too, if we found ourselves in this discussion talking about the evil of remarriage as though the remarriage is the only evil. Divorce itself is an evil, and God hates it. Putting away is divorce. God hates divorce. And if any message of our conversation today gets out into the broader church world and to the world itself, I would like that to be front and center. Divorce is rampant in the churches as well as in the world, and I want the churches especially, but the world too, as many of them as come across this message, to know this about the God of the church, the God of the Protestant Reformed churches. Our God hates putting away, and we hate it too. And not least of all, that a man betrays his wife, deals treacherously with her, that angers us, that grieves us. We want people to know that so that they will refrain from putting away or divorcing. Could you speak uh, yet on the passages like Isaiah 1 and Jeremiah 3, verse 8, where God says he divorces his wife? I'll gladly do that. I'll gladly speak about the similar subject in the Isaiah passage and in the Jeremiah passage by referring specifically to the Jeremiah passage. And that will have its consequences for our interpretation of the Isaiah passage as well. Jeremiah 3 tells Israel that God divorced her because she was guilty of spiritual adultery by her idolatry. She was unfaithful to God in the covenant relationship and God refers to that in terms of marriage. Israel sinned against the marriage with God by committing spiritual adultery. She gave God the one ground, the one lawful ground for divorce. And God divorced her. He put her away. But he did not put her away in such a way that the bond was dissolved. I love that Jeremiah passage exactly because it makes that plain. And the fact of the matter is that God took her back. The Jeremiah 3 passage speaks of that as well. The marriage was not dissolved. The marriage was temporarily a separation. Yeah, let's read that. Uh, Jeremiah 3, 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yes, Jeremiah 3, 8 expresses that God divorced Israel. 
He's faithful to his own rules concerning marriage. He didn't divorce her because he got sick of her and he liked the Babylonians better, but he divorced her on the ground of her adultery, persistent, impenitent, provoking adultery. But that adultery did not dissolve the marriage. And verse 14 of Jeremiah 3 expresses that very thing. I'm reading Jeremiah 3, verse 14, where God addresses the people that he had divorced. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. How can he say that? The bond was not dissolved. Even the grossest adultery, far worse than that a woman among us would commit adultery against her husband. This is the adultery of God's people against God himself, did not dissolve the marriage with him. And he says so in so many words, I am married unto you. And he takes her back and he reconciles her to himself, especially in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, which was the redemption of the true Israel of God as well as the redemption of the elect among all nations. So the appeal to Genesis 3, to Jeremiah 3, by those who advocate remarriage after a divorce on the ground of adultery, is self-refuting. That's the truth of uh, the mystery of Christ and his church already in the Old Testament that our marriages are to reflect. That's a beautiful passage. It's a frightening thought as well to consider that the Lord may divorce his church, but it's a a comforting thing to know that the Lord is faithful and, and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess them to him. He takes us back and he takes us back into fellowship with him. What's said here about the church as a whole applies to each of us personally, as you point out. By our sins, we can be divorced, but never in such a way that our covenant relationship with him is dissolved. He doesn't let that happen. He's faithful to us when we're not faithful to him. He reconciles us to himself, which indicates that the marriage remained intact. He brings it to its legitimate and full expression by reconciling us to himself. That's the gospel of Hosea, too. I'm reminded of that Hosea put away his wife for a time in order for that to be the means to to bring her back to repentance. And it implies the call of the gospel then for us to repent and to believe and that comes to all of us those in the church and those outside of the church to repent and believe in in Jesus Christ. Thank you again Professor Engelsma. We should uh, wrap up our session here today. Once again if you have questions you can email hope rwc at gmail.com and uh, we'll answer those right Josh? Yep that's right Yeah, we look forward to having questions and, and comments as well, welcome if anyone would like to say anything to us then and please get in touch thanks again Prof for sitting with us and uh, we appreciate your time the subject is worthy of the close attention that you men are giving to it and hope to broadcast out into the great wide world thank you for listening to this episode Be sure to tune in again next Friday, July the 28th, for the final episode of this short series. As mentioned in this episode, please be sure to contact us with any feedback or questions you might have, and we will respond promptly. We're thankful for the feedback we have received, and it is encouraging for us to know that others are benefiting from our content. We hope you can listen in again next time.